Bonjour, I'm Valérie Jardin, the host of Street Focus, and you're listening to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for This Week in Photo is provided by the Cashfly Content Delivery Network. Send your web content blazingly fast with Cashfly. And now, pay as you go. Start with two terabytes free by going to cachefly.com and use the promo code TWIP. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by iFi. Point, shoot, iFi. Try it for free at iFi.com. TWIP is brought to you by FreshBooks, the simple cloud accounting solution that's helping thousands of new entrepreneurs and small business owners save time billing and get paid faster. Sign up for free at FreshBooks.com and join over 5 million users running their businesses with ease. TWIP is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code TWIP at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. This is TWIP, episode 432. Facebook gets virtually real. Remember back in the day when QuickTime VR was all the rage? And in many ways, it represented the next logical step in video. We started seeing QuickTime VRs everywhere, from real estate to automotive to product photography and more. Imagine the possibilities. And then, poof, nothing. Seems like overnight, we forgot all about QuickTime VR and the promise it held. Well, it looks like a similar technology is back, and with the proliferation of high-speed internet access, instead of a single still 360-degree photo, you can now step into live 30 frame per second streaming video and look around. Imagine the possibilities. Again, this new technology is being invested in by some of Silicon Valley's heaviest hitters, including Google and Facebook. But is it here to stay? Or is it just another shiny object for us to get distracted by? It's Wednesday, September 30th, 2015, and this is TWIP. All right, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. Really interesting show set up for you guys today. Uh, I'm joined my, by my two good friends, Mr. Don Komarechka and Mr. Doug Kay, to tackle these issues. Welcome, gentlemen, to This Week in Photo. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. It's always a pleasure. You know, it's uh, doing this show, you know, every now and then on Twip, gremlins come out and and try to sabotage us recording the episode they came out this week and as a result this is wednesday we normally record on monday it's wednesday that we're doing the show and the gremlins came and rearranged wires on my computer so that i didn't have audio and but but thankfully we are now in the room together doing the show we're going to talk about stuff don komarechka what's going on with you man what's going on in your world Oh, uh, way, way too many things all at once. And that's that's kind of the way that I like it, I guess. Uh, I just did a presentation uh, in Burlington, Ontario last night uh, called Vision Beyond Seeing. It's one of my favorites to do. And uh, I always get so energized when I uh, get in front of people and talk photography and, uh, and inspiration and all that. So I'm still glowing from that yesterday. Uh, but then I'm sitting in front of my desk realizing that there's hundreds of hours and projects that I just have waiting in front of me. Uh, and... Uh, one of them is actually I'm putting all of the the snowflake images that I've taken over the past few years into one gigantic poster, all in relative size to one another, which requires the most boring task I think I've ever accomplished as a professional photographer, and that is measuring snowflakes. <laughs> that sounds like it kind of sounds like watching paint dry. Or uh, it's worse than that. I'd rather watch paint dry. I could be lost in my own thoughts when I'm watching paint dry, but I can't do that when I'm trying to do boring algebra. Oh, good. God. Better you than me. Better yeah. you than me. Wow. <laughs> and you know, I'm going to bug you at the end of the show about the project that you and I are working on together. Of right? course. So, so be prepared for that. It's a cliffhanger for you, audience. <laughs> Uh, Doug K, also on the show, the man behind, one of the men behind All About the Gear. Doug, what's going on with you, man? Well, speaking of All About the Gear, I was up at 7 a.m. local time to record a review of the Lumix GX8 uh, oh, with my friend it. Gordon Lang. Yep. And uh, we just finished that. In fact, if this show is being published on Friday, October 2nd, I think, mm -hmm. uh, the review of this will be out the, third, the 5th, Monday the 5th. This, oh, cool. Uh, well, give us be... a sneak peek because I'm I'm interested in that camera. What's uh, 
Good, bad, ugly? Uh, it's good. New grip. It's got a fully articulating screen, and it is Mama. very easy to shoot 4K video for stills. Makes it a really nice way to shoot 4K video for stills. Interesting. All right. I'm looking forward to that one. I didn't know you had that in your hot little hands. Uh, it, it, it arrived yesterday, and no, arrived two days ago, and I spent uh, a day and a half shooting with it. Excellent. All right. I'm looking forward to that review. All right, guys, let's dive into the show. Story number one is about Facebook launching uh, 360 degree videos with the Star Wars trailer. This comes to us from The Guardian. So uh, essentially, there is the, Facebook is now supporting videos that allow viewers to pan around a scene in a circle. And this is this is right on the heels of YouTube announcing a similar feature. So this is a this is kind of like if you're if you're old enough to remember this, remember the days of QuickTime VR when you, you know, the, all the hubbub was about this is the future of video. It's immersive 360 video that you can get into the scene and actually look around. Unlike a still photo on some car sites, it's actually when you're looking around, the video is changing as you look around. So it's a more immersive experience. And in some cases, depending on the implementation, the audio actually pans around too. So if there are birds chirping to the right, when you pass the birds, they're now chirping to the left. So it's uh, it's kind of cool. Don Komarechka, when I saw this in the show notes, I was thinking, you know, Don is going to have something to say about this because you are Mr. Technology, Mr. <laughs> Algebra, and Mr. Photon. So oh, geez. <laughs> I failed calculus twice, by the way, in high school. Um, but I, I also, it's funny to, to mention because in, in high school, I programmed in VRML, which was a virtual reality modeling language, I think. Markup. Uh, was it markup? Uh, or markup? Markup language, yeah. Markup, and yeah. Uh, and so I, I was making 3D worlds that were designed to be played in a web browser. And this was supposed to be the next greatest thing how you browse through the web in, in a virtual reality construct. That really didn't fly. Um, and virtual reality, just like you had mentioned with uh, QuickTime VR, pretty much just completely disappeared. Yeah, it just um, vanished. It was like so cool. Everyone was like, VR this, VR that. And now it's gone. And the only places I see it either on real estate sites for home walkthroughs or car sites, looking at 360s of cars or interiors. Yeah. Uh, and now, though, I mean, it, I think it all started with Oculus. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, of course, the famous Kickstarter campaign from a few years back. And there's a lot of other players in the virtual re uh, reality field now. Um, you know, Samsung has their uh, VR for their, uh, their phones, that you've got a little box that you can put that in and experience VR that way. There's a lot of big manufacturers for it. It's going to be big in the video game world. Um, and so it makes sense then that that also translates into the just standard old video world. And you could watch uh, videos and movies and things in VR. Um, I don't know how much this is going to catch on. It might have a, a brief flame of existence like uh, 3D televisions experienced. And then it's going to kind of uh, filter away. But I think yeah. the more interactive content will keep it around. Uh, and you know, if, if we're going to have uh, virtual reality stuff, I want to start doing this right in camera. And I want to really uh, learn the tools to do that because I just find it fun. But yeah. <laughs> when I see that Facebook, they, they bought Oculus. And so they now have a very, very high investment in uh, virtual reality and, uh, and all of this 360 degree video stuff. Um, even if they've got money to throw at the problem, I don't know if they can change the the social acceptance of it uh, because it just looks silly when you're wearing VR stuff. Uh, I, I I don't know. I, I'm willing to look s silly, but I think that I'm in the minority. Yeah, no, I hear you. It was the same thing with Google Glass, right? There was the whole glass hole movement and, you know, it was cool in the beginning. And then over time, it became like, really, you know, um, I still like the premise of, of a Google Glass type implementation and what it could do in terms of usability and all the different things it opens up. But you're right. You know, we're a, we're a vain culture, <laughs> you know, and I don't mean just Americans or Canadians. I mean, humans in general, we're a vain we're a vain species, and if the tech isn't cool, we're not probably not going to use it. Doug K., when you saw this VR stuff, is this interesting to you? Like, from your standpoint, I was thinking, what if you, like, we are, like, all of us, I think, to some degree, varying degrees, are interested in drones and that sort of thing. I was thinking, what if you marry these and you had 360-degree aerial footage as you're flying around? So you'd be like Superman and look to the left and down and all that as you're flying over a scene. I don't know. What do you think, Doug? Does this have legs? What makes you think that doesn't exist already? That's true. Uh -huh. By the, so what do, you, what do you think? Uh, well, it's interesting. A couple of things. I Just Monday night, I was at a lecture by Ray Kurzweil, uh, the father of the singularity concept and so mm -hmm. forth. 
And of course, he's going to solve Don's problem uh, by uh, giving us direct brain interfaces to these things so we won't have to wear the, the geeky goggles. Uh, the other big thing that's happened, you know, in VR is they've eliminated the lag. The lag is the thing that's always been the giveaway, if you will, and the re- thing that makes it more of a game than a realistic thing. Yeah. But you know, you know what this reminded me of? I, I watched the video and it reminded me of Second Life, right? <laughs> I had yeah. that's so. I, I thought it was like twenty years ago. It's only twelve years ago that Second Life came out. Yeah, but as it's I still na- going strong too. Oh, oh, is it really? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Yeah, uh, but as you, you know, it, it's a combination of Second Life, animation, and really Google Street View. You know, yeah. the ability yeah. to just put yourself somewhere and turn left and right and tilt right. up and tilt down it was very much like Street View in Google. Um, there are a couple of weird things about this particular video was that you're going along forward and you hear this sound and it's t- totally not in context. You have no idea what it is. It's not until you look to the right that you see the source of the sound. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was sort yeah. of a fun thing. I, you know, to me, uh, it doesn't represent anything more than entertainment in terms of what um, uh, what Facebook is going to use it for. Uh, my son works at NASA and, of course, they're very heavily involved with this stuff. Uh, doing a virtual reality and augmented reality. But um, in terms of Facebook, I don't know. They must have some idea they wouldn't have bought Oculus. Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, you know, the obvious use for this is is porn, right? Because <laughs> you're going to see, <laughs> you know, and you've seen this already. I mean, it's already, it's already happening. In Second Life, as you mentioned, that's kind of pornography and that kind of thing have proliferated into that world. I wonder, I wonder what the killer app for Oculus is. Is it that? And therefore, no one's going to do it, you know, or it's never going to go main mainstream. Or is there some other like, Don, is there some other like killer app for this 3D technology that's going to make people, you know, it, make it become the next the next big thing that, uh, you know, that reinvigorates the 3D space? I, I've heard of a lot of uh, niche use cases for, mm-hmm. for this kind of technology. Um, and whether that all um, coalesces into something that everybody will have some use for, I'm not sure. Um, a, a great use that I was reading about recently and a very expensive use is uh, fighter pilot helmets where Mm -hmm. uh, you can do augmented reality where the fighter pilot can look down uh, below their cockpit and they can see through the floor and they can see other aircraft that are around. And so this VR technology um, can have all sorts of really interesting tie-ins to to solve technical problems and uh, and to make life easier and and safer for some people. Um, There's also the idea where, okay, well, maybe uh, maybe your... uh, you know, disabled in some way, and you can't actually uh, get out and enjoy the world in the same way. So then you could have like a robot counterpart, uh, and you could vis- uh, like uh, control a physical uh, avatar somewhere else and move around like that. There's all sorts of really weird ideas that some companies are experimenting with, but I don't think any of them are even remotely approaching mainstream. I think that the yeah. only way that this could be mainstream is to have truly useful, engaging, interactive content. Content is king for this. And like you had mentioned, porn, some people are going to go and do that because, I mean, that's the content that they're looking for. Uh, But again, that's not mainstream. I think that if you can get some killer app video games that are the reason for somebody to go out and buy one of these devices, then you will have them in households. The gaming market is not everybody, though, and so that still doesn't hit that mainstream. That doesn't hit everybody. Um, Doug mentioned that uh, the the lag is gone, and for the most part, it is. A lot of VR headsets now are very, very good with the lag so that it does appear realistic. However, I think one of the biggest drawbacks right now is you're still tethered. You still have a wire that's connecting to whatever VR technology that you're using, and they haven't gotten the wireless bit to be as lag-free yet. Um, But will it get there? Of course it will. The technology will evolve to that. And at that point, where will we find ourselves? Will there be enough of these uh, niche and fringe cases to, to, to wrap around society to make this useful? Facebook uh, seems to think so. And they're funneling, like they paid $2 billion for Oculus. They're funneling all this money into these uh, these 3D uh, or sorry, uh, VR technologies. And so is YouTube. So Google's got money in the game. A lot of companies are looking at this like it's the next big thing. I, I personally, I hope it is. Uh, if it isn't, well, then I, I wish that, that I, I hope that I have some time to experiment with, uh, you know, creating my own content in VR before the uh, the 
uh, interest disappears. Yeah, I think my my thing is, I mean, I, I love the augmented reality type stuff where like in Yelp, you can hold up your phone and it knows the orientation of your phone and where you're pointing and it will kind of label things around you and then you can go in. I think that's cool. Like, and, and there's many different implementations of that I could see going down the road. So you could like, you know, be on a car lot and look at the cars and see the prices, you know, before you walk up to a particular model or even on people, you know, it's, it's, I like that kind of thing. But when I look at this, I'm thinking from the standpoint of, and Doug, I want to have you, you chime in on this. I'm thinking from the standpoint of, of the, the advanced amateur, amateur and professional photographer. So when we see something like this and Facebook leaning in onto a technology, Facebook and Google leaning in on a technology, does this, does this mean that we as content creators, like Don, Don said, content is king, right? We as content creators need to start embracing this and learning how to create in this new medium, much like we need to understand video editing. Now we need to understand 3D video and all that stuff. Or is it niche and it's a wait and see thing? What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, most still photographers who do weddings and so forth are still catching up with video. So I don't know, I don't know that we're at the point where it's ready for prime time. I think, you know, first of all, in reaction to what Don says, I, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that this will be successful in the video game business. That yeah. is absolutely going to be the case. Uh, uh, I think that, you know, gamers are already chomping at the bit for this. And that remember that industry is much larger than the motion picture industry already. So that will happen. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, the development tools will improve. Uh, it'll be easier and easier to create these things. Uh, people certainly will be creating in the gaming industry. Uh, and then I think you'll see. Um, I think you actually see, obviously, porn is obviously a place where so many technologies get their start. Yeah. Uh, think VCR, for example. But um, I also think things like weddings, you know, weddings which are very competitive. And so you'll find people who people who will discover ways to use this technology to to capture the 3Dness and the virtual reality of a wedding. And so that you'll be able to go back, you know, 10 years later and say, oh, wow, and look around the room and see was, who was standing where and what yeah. they were doing. Who was crying. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and it'll be it'll be more than just 3D. Uh, because let's face it, this isn't just 3D. There's there's actually, um, uh, in the case of the Star Wars trailer, they talked about, it's funny, they talked about in the write-up this very special camera they used. Mm-hmm. But yet, it looked to me like it was all computer generated. Obviously, it's not, or they wouldn't have used a camera. Yeah, so interesting. I, well, know, that, maybe, that brings maybe up was another all, issue. Maybe it was all models, you know. Might have well, that, that brings up another issue, Doug. So the, the, the idea of gear... Right. So and that's always the barrier because, yeah, and Doug's all about the gear. So, you know, you look at this and you're like, OK, I want to try that. And then it becomes, well, what's the barrier to entry? I got to buy this new gear. I think, Don, that might be what ha- what stalled QuickTime VR in the beginning, because back in the beginning, before all the tech that we have today, there was you had to buy the special tripod head, which was really expensive with click points. And you need to know what nodal point was and register your camera and all these things in order to get a reasonably good panorama. It was a it was a production. Whereas today with technology, you can stand in one place and spin around and you can get something decent with this new tech. Do you what do you guys think? Do you think the barrier to entry is too high and therefore it's going to be relegated to those folks with big budgets? Now, the barrier to entry is dropping so quickly. You can like for a couple of hundred dollars buy a 360 degree camera, not to say that it's going to be a good one. It might not have all the features that you want. But they exist. And if if that exists now, it's only going to get better by the time the technology has greater adoption. So I think that these things are rising in exactly the right levels so that there will be a balance of uh, content creators and uh, content consumers at the same time. The, the interesting thing, you mentioned weddings. How cool would it be if you had like a 360-degree camera in the middle of the wedding hall on a pole? And it was just recording the entire ceremony, the dancing, you know, the people uh, having conversations and uh, any bits and pieces of traditions uh, that happened across the way. And that you could then throw on a VR helmet and uh, relive your wedding day from the, the center of the room uh, you know, the 10 years after the fact. I, some people would want to have that. That would be a really interesting thing for a wedding photographer to add to their package to offer a potential client. And I'm not sure if there's a demand for it yet. There's no people that are actively asking for it. But if you had that as like an added bonus, a wedding photographer, I think that they would have some really cool and unique content that then they could promote themselves. And that could be a thing that gets started too. 
Well, people don't know what they want until you give it to them, like Steve Jobs said. <laughs> so exactly. You have, and you guys are both right. I think on the on the side of the wedding photographer, they're always looking for ways to differentiate themselves and to bring a different experience to the bride and groom. Um, and this might be a way to do it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's really interesting. You know, one of, one of, one of the things that I I saw was the whole. I was reading on. Uh, I was researching this stuff, and I went down this whole rabbit hole, and I ended up on these next generation prototype car things that they're working on where you put on goggles in the car and by virtue of the car having like a gazillion cameras around it you could actually look behind you like when you're trying to like parallel park you could look behind you and actually see the curb through the door <laughs> so it would actually lay over like a like a uh, wireframe of the car and actual video behind it in perspective to where your head is positioned so that you see the curb as you're parking your car. And I, uh, that's kind of cool. But then again, do you want to be driving around with goggles on? I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. I go, I, wait, wait, I have to park. Hold on. I got to put on my goggles so I can park the <laughs> no. car. But, you know, a couple of things come to mind. Don mentioned the wedding and I figured out, finally, we have a reason to take down the disco balls and we can put a camera up where we used to have the disco balls. Thank goodness. It's been like three decades. Get rid of those things. I don't know. What's what's but, a disco ball? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to I want to point out one thing. We are, to some extent, confusing two technologies here. If, in fact, this video that Facebook has posted was done with cameras, that's not virtual reality. That's 360-degree photography with a player, okay? Yeah. And there may or may not have been anything virtual about that. As opposed to true VR, where it is a virtual reality, no cameras are typically used. If, they're, if it's cameras and digital, then it's augmented reality because you're combining the two technologies. So we've talked about two different things here. Um, again, this video is being pitched as 360 camera-based video, but it sort of looks more like VR. So who knows? All right. All right, guys, let's move on. Before we uh, jump into our next story, I want to pause for our newest sponsor on the TWIP network, and that's our friends over at iFi. This episode of TWIP is sponsored by iFi iFi has a brand new vision for helping you manage your photography. Here's how they look at photography workflows, old versus new. The old way, point, shoot, download, organize, backup, die of boredom, then rinse and repeat. The new way, point, shoot, and iFi. iFi pulls all of your original resolution photos from your digital camera and smartphone and puts them into a single, intelligently organized library. This library is then immediately viewable from all of your devices, and iFi backs up everything to the cloud as well as your desktop automatically. The best thing is you can try it for free today at iFi.com. That's iFi.com. And we'd like to thank iFi for their support of This Week in Photo. All right, guys, let's jump into story number two. This is about Sony. Doug, I know you know a thing or two about Sony and the A7 series. Um, so they've announced their new low-light monster camera, the A7S2, which I believe you have in your hot little hands over there, right, Doug? Uh, the A7S2, I do not, but I ordered mine the first hour it was available. <laughs> you were that guy. You're like the rabid Apple fanboy at midnight on phone launch day, it's, right? It's not true. It's just, it's this particular camera I've been waiting for. I did not purchase an A7 Mark II. I did not purchase an A7R Mark II. Uh, but the A7S uh, high ISO camera I've been waiting for. I didn't expect it till December, and now it's coming around October 17th. Look at that. Right in time for Christmas. Okay, so tell us about this camera. And you're going to review this, obviously, when you get yours on All About the Gear. But tell us what this this camera is purported to bring to you and why you ordered it day one. Yeah, the A7 line consists of three basic concepts. One is a general purpose camera, the A7, now replaced by the A7 Mark II. A high-resolution camera, the A7R, replaced by the A7R Mark II. And a high ISO, low-noise camera, the A7S now being replaced by the A7S Mark II. And that's its feature. It is only 12 megapixels, but it shoots in the dark, literally. And um, uh, of course, the Mark II is a whole new body line. It's a stronger body, magnesium base, I think aluminum top. Uh, and the biggest feature probably in there is uh, sensor-based image stabilization. So you can image stabilize any lens. 
Okay, and that's what. Uh, so that's what. Who is it? Um, Olympus has in their kind of groundbreaking image right. stabilization, right? And so does this guy now. The Lumix G8 has uh, sensor-based in-camera, in-body in image stabilization. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, if I, I bet it's GX8. I don't know what I actually oh, said. No, you're you're killing me. I don't want to buy another camera. <laughs> I don't. I refuse. Unless that camera has an audio in jack, I'm not buying it. <laughs> you know, I haven't. I'll be honest. I haven't even looked. Hang on. I, I Hang on. I'm gonna look and see. Uh oh. You need to play some. Oh, you don't some... want. You don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. Don't tell me. Don't tell yeah, me. Hold it on. Has, it has a mic in. Oh, God. Okay, so you ordered this one. You had the A7S. Right. And you loved it. So, so okay, let's back up a little bit. So the A7S, you just literally just got that camera. You love that no, camera. No, no, no. That camera's coming up on a year old. Oh, a it's whole really year. Old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, oh and that, a whole year. Oh, geez. So it's, it's walking already. Okay, so... <laughs> Again, you just got that camera, right? What can this A7S II do for you that you could not do with the A7S, that you had to plunk down that extra money to get the two the, over the S that you still have the box in the receipt for? Uh, it's going to be a slightly better image quality. It's going to have substantially better autofocus, and I'm going to be able to handhold uh, shots at one second or so. Okay. And this is this what you told your wife when you were telling her you <laughs> Well, it hasn't come yet, so I haven't said a word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're the ask forgiveness guy. Okay. That's right. Well, you know, it, it doesn't look all that different from the other camera she may not even notice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just slip it right in. <laughs> well, it's just it's one of my Sony's, you know. Yeah. Oh man. So you love it. So you're gonna you're gonna have a good time with that. Any other notes on that camera that uh, that people should know about before your review? Uh, no, I think those are the main things. It's expensive. It's around three thousand dollars or something like that. But um, uh, you know, the the whole all the Mark IIs are substantial improvements over the Mark One cameras. They're much more solid feeling, um, uh, just just better all around. Now, Don Komarichka, I very rarely hear you like like doing the Tarzan vine swinging thing from camera to camera like some other people uh -huh. on this show. <laughs> So Sorry. it's like you remember that game. You remember the game Pitfall, where the vine, you know, he's swinging oh, from do vine I to ever, vine. Yeah. yeah. So Doug's Doug's the guy in Pitfall, swinging from vine to vine. <laughs> Every now and then he falls in in, in a pit. Um, but Don, what do you think about this? I mean, you see where I'm leading the conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, I, the I A7 II obviously state of the art. A7S Mark II obviously state of the art. Five axis image stabilization. Nothing to sneeze at. Going to be a fantastic camera. But is the fantasticalness of this camera that much more over the A7S to warrant, uh, you know, begging your wife for three grand? <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you that the camera that I'm currently using is the Canon 1DX and I got it as soon as it came out. And that's probably over three years ago now. Um, yeah. So if, if, if uh, Doug thinks his camera is old and needs to be replaced, mine's a dinosaur uh, by the same metric. So I've been looking to see what Canon might possibly announce. But then I see all of this awesome stuff from Sony, and it's so <laughs> it's enticing crazy. because yeah. you know you've got all of the uh, all of the the uh, the numbers that I like. You know, really high ISO. You've got very high quality pixels. Um, now it does 4K video even better than it did before. It records it internally at a higher bit rate, and uh, and so all of that kind of says, okay, well, this Sony camera is really looking tantalizing for me, um, especially that it does uh, 1080p video at 120 frames per second now. So if I wanted to do slow mo full HD, I can do that. I've got some video projects coming up that could take advantage of it. Um, I push limits in my photography. The 1DX does really good high ISO stuff, but it, again, it's generations old in camera tech. Yeah. And so yeah. now I'm seeing what, what Sony's being able to produce in this sensor. And yes, Canon has lots of stuff coming down the pike as well, but I, I have to kind of, I, I'm the kind of person that makes a decision on which camera to own, invests a lot of money into it, and then sticks with it for a couple of years building up lenses and stuff. But then I was thinking, okay, Canon lenses work really good on the Sony cameras now too. Oh boy. Um, so maybe I'll buy a Sony body and I would be on the fence between the A7S II and the R2. 
Um, but this new camera is, it, it's, it's just, it's getting better and better and better. And to the point where I know I've said this for years that you can't go and buy a, a, a bad camera. They just, they don't make them anymore. If you, if you That's take true. a, if you take a bad picture, you can't blame the hardware anymore. Uh, it falls squarely on the shoulders of the photographer and all of these new advancements, they don't let you take better pictures. They, they help you in some ways to push into new territory, uh, which can be more creative for you. And I think that's the way that I justify it to myself to say, okay, well, that's, that's why I want to spend money on this new lens and, and these new ideas because I can do more stuff with it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then, so I, I, I do, you know, I try to push those limits, but does the average photographer need it? I don't know if they need it. If they don't already have uh, a, a camera of this caliber, then by all means, run out and buy it if you've got the budget for it. But if you already have something that is as awesome as the A7S, I'm not sure if if you can justify the need for for its successor so quickly anyhow. Doug K, did you hear that? <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> Doug said, I don't care, I want the camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't, around here we don't talk about justify. <laughs> You know, that's, 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 that's something that's in our lexicon, if you will. But, uh, I, and I want to say that the, the reason, you know, everyone's going for megapixels, megapixels, megapixels. Uh, the last thing I want is a 42 or a 50 megapixel camera because I never print anything larger than about 16 by 20. Uh, I don't do a lot of cropping, but the one thing I love is essentially a different way of shooting. And that is to take my high ISO Sony's and put the cameras into auto ISO mode, set yeah. the maximum ISO to 25,000, which you can't do on most cameras successfully, and let the camera, I, I select whatever aperture I want, I select whatever shutter speed I want, and I'm relatively confident that I'm going to be in a range that the camera can automatically select the ISO, and I just don't care. That's uh, incredibly liberating. Now, this is for street photography primarily, where I'm going in and out of shadows. Uh, it also allows me to shoot at night at reasonably high shutter speeds, which is a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, it's um, it's not for everyone. It's not for yeah. everyone. It's not not a landscape camera. It's not. Uh, it's also not even for sports because it still doesn't autofocus all that fast. But uh, I love it. Yeah, this sounds like the ideal street photographer's camera, and and many other genres, but. I, yeah, I want to yeah. touch on one thing that, that, that Doug mentioned, yeah, that it. megapixels aren't everything. And uh, in a lot of the work that I do, I mean, I do print big. Um, like there's a print on the wall behind me that's an 80 by 20. Um, but that's uh, that's from one frame of a 5D Mark II. And it's only about a third of those pixels. So it's about a 7 megapixel image um, that was printed in that ratio. It looks great. You've got to massage it a little bit to, to make a big print like that. I've printed uh, from my 1DX, which is 18 megapixels. I've printed as big as 70 by 40. Um, it doesn't, you don't need those pixels as long as you have good pixels to start with. There's all sorts of ways to get great quality work. And I find, especially in the extreme macro stuff that I'm dealing with, I need bigger pixels. I don't need more of them. Uh, so I just wanted to echo that sentiment as well, that, uh, uh, more is not better. Better is better. Love it. That might be the title of this episode. I love it. (laughs) Very good. All right, guys, let's uh, let's move on to our next story. But before we do that, uh, we're going to take a break to uh, thank our next sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo. And that's our friends over at FreshBooks. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to freshbooks.com twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, We use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know, as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know, all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain. And thankfully, FreshBook offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or, 
you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients. It's easy. You can do it in seconds. And expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your on your mobile phone. You can whip up business reports. You can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up. So with a couple of clicks, you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant so that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP, enter the code This Week in Photo or TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to, uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of This Week in Photo. All right, guys, story number three, uh, PETA, or the, what is it? Uh, what's the, Don, what's the acronym for PETA? People uh, for the Ethical, ethical Treatment, treatment of, of Animals. animals. Yeah. Right. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals has sued, or they're suing a photographer on the behalf of a monkey to get to get the, the monkey copyright. It's even hard for me to read this headline. So you guys have seen the story. Doug K, we've talked about this whole, uh, you know, I think it was, what was it last year we had the whole macaque thing where the macaque actually took the picture, but it wasn't, you know, who owns the picture if the macaque, who, you know, the monkey presses the button and it's the photographer's camera. Does the monkey own the copyright or does the photographer who owns the camera own the copyright? PETA is now suing this photographer on uh, on a monkey's behalf to get copyright. What do you think of this story? Is it does it hold water? I you know I love this story and I've loved this story from the beginning because nothing to do with this particular case, but it it makes people aware of who owns the copyright. And for those friends of mine who are wedding photographers, they're always fighting this battle because uh, people hire a wedding photographer and think that they, the bride and groom or the mother in law owns the pictures. And of course they don't, the photographer does, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a shock to anybody who's having their first marriage. <laughs> okay. Right, right. So this raises the awareness of it, but so here's a, the, the, what's interesting about this one is uh, I'm not an attorney, but I do pretend to be one. I don't know that PETA has standing in this case. Uh, they're not damaged by this. They're not claiming that they're one of the uh, parties involved. So they're suing on behalf of this macaque. Um, you know, who knows where it's going to go. Uh, the Copyright Office has said that they are simply not going to register copyrights that aren't created by humans. I think that's a reasonable stance. So that uh, they're saying by default that this is essentially a, um, a public domain image. Uh, but but uh, it's it's just it's a fun story. We don't get yeah. too many fun stories on this show. It is. I know. We're always all serious on the show. I think uh, PETA might expand their 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 purview to include humans in there. So maybe they add people for the ethical treatment of humans too. So <laughs> we have the whole umbrella covered because we're animals as well. Don Komarechka, what do you think? I mean, was, is this uh, it's just, you know, I was thinking of this as like, okay, they're trying to get some PR. Is it is it PR or is it, this is actually a valid case? I, I think that the PR is, is a part of it. Um, but I, I want to echo what, what Doug had said uh, as well about copyright ownership based on who presses the shutter button. Um, yeah. Because if you hand your camera off to somebody and you're uh, out with your better half in a beautiful scene and say, can you just take a picture of us? Well, you don't actually own that picture. The person who took the picture owns that picture, even though it's on your camera. That person that walked away will never see you again, doesn't care. Technically, they own the copyright to that photograph. Um now, yeah, but how you prove that? Well, I mean, exactly. You know, a, a photo goes viral that some stranger took, and now the stranger's like, "Hey, I took that." How do you actually prove that you press the button? Unless there's some sort of fingerprint sensor on there. That that, that is the perfect segue to what I was just about to say, Frederick. How do you Good. how do you prove that the monkey took the picture besides the photographer saying so? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if a photographer says, "Oh, I must have been mistaken. The monkey took other ones, but I took this one." Well, I, <laughs> it, it's uh, the photographer's word against the monkey's word, um, and so who's Who's going to really kind of fight that? Well, PETA apparently would be be, be fighting that. Uh, so, but but the issue here is, 
sure, the monkey pressed the shutter. Monkeys aren't people. Uh, animals are not people. They do have rights. Uh, I'm not saying that animals don't have rights, uh, but they don't have the same rights as people. And right. so uh, the monkey can't vote. The monkey can't own intellectual property. Uh, and, and that's important because there are animals all around the world, uh, like uh, there's elephants that paint. Uh, that elephant does not own the copyright to that painting. Uh, whoever owns the elephant owns that. Um, but then whoever owns that monkey would own the picture by the same logic. And nobody owns that monkey, I don't think. And so there's a lot of sort of back and forth gray area. There's not really any laws that decide this. I think what uh, what they're trying to do here is set some sort of precedent to say that an animal can uh, own intellectual property, which would open them up to a lot of those other cases where animals have created artwork of some kind uh, and then to pursue that in order to uh, to further their agenda. I mean, what, what their organization was created for. Really, really interesting. See, now my brain is spinning because that makes that makes a lot of sense because I've seen that elephant that can paint. And you're right. You know, the elephant and even if the elephant did own the copyright, then what? You know, if, if that painting that the elephant created belonged to the elephant or in the case of this story, the photo that the monkey took belongs to the monkey. Then what? What does that mean? I, I mean, like, <laughs> well, I, I tell you, if the if the elephant owned the copyright to those uh, to those paintings, he'd get paid a lot less because he'd be happy to be paid in peanuts. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it. Doug, you did not see that coming. I saw that coming no, a mile away. No, I didn't. I should have known better. I need more coffee. <laughs> I was waiting for it in my head. I'm going. Wait for it. Wait for it. <laughs> That was great. Very good. Very good. All right, guys, let's uh, let's move on. We're going to take a quick break and answer a listener question after this word from one of our, our last sponsor in this episode. And that's our friends at Squarespace. If you haven't checked out Squarespace lately, you really should pop over to Squarespace.com and have a look. The templates they use are stunning and completely remove the need to do any coding or maintenance. And if you want, you can customize these templates to meet your particular aesthetic. The sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't need any coding skill or any magic like that. Their intuitive tools are easy to use. Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering the site to make sure that it's secure and stable. And also, it's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world are using Squarespace. Plans start at $8 a month and you can even get a free domain if you sign up for a year. You can start your free trial today with no credit card required over at squarespace.com. Then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code TWIP to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right, guys, it's time for some listener Q&A. And this week's question is a voice message from one of our callers who unfortunately did not leave her name, but hopefully she's listening. My question has to do with using an older flash with a newer digital camera. I just made the move from a film camera, my old Nikon, where I had a bunch of equipment and lenses, to a Sony A6000. I have an older Vivitar flash that I'd love to just play with as I'm learning uh, photography all over again, and I'm concerned that it might damage or do something terrible to my camera. I keep reading that I need to make sure the voltage doesn't exceed it, but I don't know how to figure that out. Can you help? All right, guys, you heard that question and you've read it in the show notes. Don Komarechka, you want to dive in? What's your what's your take on this question from our nameless listener? Well, if you have uh, if you have older flash units, um, oftentimes they will work on modern cameras, but not all the time. And you have to do a bit of research to find out exactly if your flash will work with your camera. I've got an old Vivitar flash that I bought specifically for some crazy projects that are coming up. Um, and I had to make sure that it would work on modern cameras because sometimes the uh, the flash requires a different triggering voltage than the camera can supply. And so it won't work. And in some cases can even damage, uh, damage the camera. So if you're talking about very uh, antiquated uh, flashes, then second guess it. Um, mm -hmm. If it's something that was designed in a more modern era, but it's still an older flash, uh, it'll probably work. It'll work only in a manual mode in most cases, uh, but you'll still be able to get some light to, uh, to illuminate your subjects. And uh, it's still very valuable equipment to keep around. Yeah. 
Yeah, and maybe maybe even consider using it off off camera with some sort of strobe or a uh, uh, photonic cell to set it off or something. You know, so you don't necessarily have to slap it to the top of your camera. You can use it as an external flash. Doug, what about you? you got anything to add to this about using yeah. an old Vivitar flash? Don, uh, I, I do know some information about this, but before I answer that and make a fool of myself, Don, is it true that the flash is a voltage-based interface or is it just a contact closure? Uh, it, it's it's a voltage-based interface, or at least it used to be. I'm not sure about all the new modern workings of it because there's digital communication between flashes and camera bodies now. Um, okay. But it used to be a voltage, uh, voltage trigger. Because um, in general, I have an E6000, so I have some first-hand experience with this. You can use old non-Sony flashes with this. I've never heard of a flash not working with it unless the flash used a proprietary interface. But the standard interface for a flash is simply two terminals. One of them is the center terminal, and the other actually comes from the shoe itself. And the problem with the Sony A6000 is that Sony has their own proprietary interface, which is a bunch of little teeny terminals in the far end of what you slip into the hot shoe. It will support old ones uh, and non-Sony. The problem is that they've painted the hot shoe. And when they paint it, there's paint on the sides inside the inside the uh, slots that the thing slips into. And it, you have to go online. You can look. You'll find videos for this even. But you have to go in there and essentially sand off the paint on the side of the hot shoe. Oh, God. Uh, not the shot shoe, but the hot shoe socket. Yeah, the hot shoe. That's what it's called. And you just have to remove a little bit of paint there because you need to make contact with the edge of the hot shoe. But it should work just fine. I don't think there's any significant risk uh, because my guess is, as Don says, if it's a voltage-based interface, that the voltage is quite standardized because it's an old, old interface. Uh, wow. And, and I'll, I'll say, too, that uh, when I was searching for a cheap flash to buy for some of my projects, a Vivitar flash was the one that was recommended. But uh, I had looked up on uh, B&H Photo when I was buying it specifically from, uh, from them to read the reviews. And the reviews were saying people were using that flash with cameras very similar to mine. Uh, and so I knew that there was compatibility, that it was going to work. So if that flash is still available, uh, like if it is still something that is is being sold and marketed, or even if you could find reviews of it uh, from, from a few years ago when it might have still been available, I think that would be your best indication by uh, reading the firsthand accounts of people that have that flash in their hands and if they've made any mistakes with it. Yeah, exactly right. A Google search for A6000 and the name of your flash or the model of your flash should solve it. But you will find a lot of information because it's been discussed for many years uh, about what you have to do to an A6000 hot shoe to make it make contact with your flash. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, using old strobes. I have a ton of old strobes. I wouldn't call them old, but I have uh, some Nikon SB24s, 25s, 26s that I used to use a lot when I shot Nikon. And I'm keeping those because, not because I want to slap them on my new camera stuff, but I, I every time I look at them, like light is light. I can throw those things in manual mode, put them on a light stand, bounce them out of umbrellas and whatever. And like these Vivitars that this listener's talking about, aside from using them on the camera, you can, you can buy these flashes for or strobes for relatively cheap or next to nothing in many cases, and you still have an awesome light source that you can throw on a light stand or bounce off the wall or up the ceiling or whatever to get some really interesting effects. You don't always have to have the most expensive camera or the most expensive flash to get, uh, to get really good results. Cool. Well, thank you, and uh, listener, unknown, unnamed listener, and other listeners with names. If you'd like a answer, like us to answer a question on the show, just visit thisweekinphoto.com and click on the submit a question link and send us a question or leave us a message. All right, guys, let's dive into the picks of the week. Remember, your pick of, pick of the week can be anything as long as it is somehow related to photography. Doug K, what is your pick of the week? Well, I don't think this has been discussed on This Week in Photo. Uh, I checked to make sure, but wasn't 100% sure. So, you know, a lot of us have, you know, Gorillapod tripods and things like that. And they're great for small cameras. Yeah. Um, but they don't do everything. And they don't hold a lot of weight sometimes. So I found out, I found this thing called the Platypod. Uh-oh. And this Platypod <laughs> is an aluminum base. And it oh, you've got one. Look at that. Yeah. Okay. An aluminum base. It has a thread that'll take a, uh, a a head, a tripod head. Uh, it has another base here that'll take a, 
other, you know, a smaller thread for other things. Then it's got these three threaded gadgets on it that are reversible. So on one side, you can put these rubber tipped things for putting it on soft surfaces, or you can turn these screws upside down and use these, these pointy things, like if you're on rock or something that you, you want to really make a grip on. And it holds a lot of weight. Um, you have to balance things right, obviously. Uh, you can get a bigger head than this. They ship it with this little Manfrotto teeny little head. Uh, I've also got, where did I put it here? Oh, I also ordered the model that includes a clippy thing for um, an iPhone. You can get this for iPhone or iPad. Oh, nice. Very and so cool. it's a, if you want to do FaceTime or something, you can put this on there. But I have found that this is actually more useful when I travel than a Gorillapod, and it's actually smaller. It takes up less space in my bag. This is, I think it's about $25 or $30. I forget. It's Platypod, P-L-A-T-Y-P-O-D Pro, platypodpro.com. And it's made by, uh, you know, it's one of these little teeny husband and wife companies who ships them out of their living room. And I got to tell you, I had a problem with my order and I contacted them and they were exceptionally aggressive about making sure I was satisfied. And I was so happy with their service. I'm so happy with the product that I said, next time I'm on Twip, that's going to be my pick of the week. The Platypod Pro. Platypod Pro. I love that. And mm. I love I love it that you're supporting these smaller companies too. That's that's really cool. That's nice. And I uh I'm addicted to those Gorilla Pods. I've got I've got at least 3 of them within eyesight right now that I'm looking at. And you're right. They're they're great for what they do and they're great for doing, you know, all manner of things and holding all manner of things, but when you're traveling you're right. You want something that can slip into your bag and be a little less conspicuous. So this looks really good. And it's only what I'm looking on the site now. It says $49.95 for the deluxe kit. Jeez. Yeah, the deluxe the deluxe kit includes, I think, either this iPhone holder or an iPad holder. And it's not not obviously iPhone specific, but it's, you know, phone. This does support an iPhone 6 Plus, by the way, adjustable jaws. Oh, good. Uh, and so it's really nice. I, you know, I talk to family people using FaceTime and I just set it on the table and I've got a real nice way. Instead of leaning the phone or the iPad up against some gadget, I can yeah. position it any way I like. And, right. and it, this thing does a really good job, by the way, because it's adjustable of, you know, sitting at an angle or something like that. You can basically use it almost anywhere. All right. I'll, uh, I'll be buying one of those after the show. Thank you. Cool. All right. Don Komarechka, what is your pick of the week? Well, uh, I'd been a holdout to buying a new monitor for a long time. Uh, so I finally decided to uh, to bite the bullet and, uh, and and upgrade. Mine was starting to flicker and it had some weird lines on it. Uh, so I was looking at the UHD, the um, the uh, the 4K monitors that, that are available today. And uh, most of them were smaller sizes. My previous monitor was a 30-inch display, and I didn't want to go any smaller than that, uh, especially at the resolutions that I was dealing with. So uh, I, uh, I invested in the Asus ProArt. Uh, it's a 32-inch monitor, the PA328Q. Now, I know that there's actually the 329 that's supposed to be coming out soon as well. That's uh, even better color representation. But I am so happy with this monitor. Um, I Even if you don't have high megapixel images and just to see something across the entire screen that is showing you so much information, uh, it's, just, it's really fun. And I know, Frederick, uh, you've got a 4 or a 5K display, and, uh, and I'm sure that most uh, Mac users that have bought an iMac uh, or a MacBook Pro in the last little while are probably dealing with these resolutions. But to have one this big at 32 inches is a joy. Um, yeah. It's color calibrated right out of the factory, uh, although I did calibrate it as well myself. And I noticed very, very little difference compared to other monitors that I've calibrated. So it comes together really nicely right out of the box. Um, the only complaints that I have have nothing to do with the monitor. They have to do with uh, software support. Windows does a really, really good job at uh, at scaling the user interface, but some applications, namely Photoshop, uh, don't scale well at all. Uh, the user interface can be either incredibly small or clunkily big, and there's no happy medium in between that I've been able to find. Uh, and so I've been working with the smaller user interface. My eyes are still good enough for that now, um, but uh, it's... Uh, it, it, it's not cheap either. Something like this, it's a $1,500 investment or so. Um, yeah. But on average, like my last monitor lasted me six or seven years. So if I can expect the same lifetime out of this one, then it's money well spent. 
And what was your what model was your last monitor? Uh, it was an LG. I think it was one of the only 30-inch displays that they had made with a 2560 by 1600 resolution. I don't know the exact uh, model number off the top of my head, um, but it was uh, uh, it was 30 inches LG uh, at that resolution. They only made one, so uh, and it was great. It calibrated very well, but uh, you know these things are not meant to last forever. I'm I'm looking at it on Engadget site right now. It looks. Uh... That looks gorgeous. <laughs> it really does look gorgeous. I'd love to see one of these in person. But right now, I've got, you know, I'm on pixel overload. I've got the 5K iMac and plugged into that. I've got a 27-inch cinema display. So I'm, I've got enough pixels. But now I'm looking at this one and lusting after it. And, you know, and you say $1,500, that's an investment, definitely. But if you're in this stuff and this is what you do for a living and you're committed to photography, the dis, you know, the the transmission of light from the display to your eyes, that is the last mile, right? And I, I be- spend hundreds and thousands of hours, uh, not of the, uh, probably around 5,000 hours uh, on a yearly basis staring at this display. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I want it to be a good one. I, I, I And so, you know, 20,000 to 30,000 hours over the life of that display, over the time that I would have it. Yeah, that's, I, I don't want to be looking at something that my eyes are going to be strained or the colors aren't going to be right or that I constantly have to recalibrate uh, and deal with. So um, very thin uh, bezel around the outer edges as well for, for these kinds of displays compared to the previous one that I had, um, which gives me a little bit more desk space too. So no complaints there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just to geek out for a second, my next one of the next moves that I'm contemplating, and both you guys might like like this. I'm thinking about getting one of those those arms with the vest mount on it, so that I can put my put my both of my displays on articulated arms and free up even more desk desk space. Yeah, and you have them moving around, and you know, when I need my desk, I can just push them out of the way and actually work on things and then when I need my monitor just pull it down. I, I was thinking about doing the same thing Frederick and then I looked behind my monitors and I realized how much junk just accumulates and I don't want to have to keep a desk clean. Uh, I, yeah. I just I, I'm, I'm lazy and, and I'm, I'm cluttered so all that <laughs> junk just hides behind the monitor stands and so if yeah. I got rid of those then I would have to be cleaner around here and I don't know if I'll be able to do that. Don you know you know the fact that you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like air, you know? <laughs> uh, one of these All days right. I might learn. All right. Well, thanks for that. That's the Asus ProArt 32-inch monitor. Cool. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right, guys. And my pick of the week is uh, an avid listener to This Week in Photo, Mr. Mike Sharkey James is now over at Petapixel, and he started the Petapixel Photography Podcast. So I want to give a shout-out to them and help him get some love on that show. I think they're doing a great job. They just started a short time ago. You can find it at petapixel.com slash podcast. So uh, definitely check them out. And we, as you guys know, we refer to Petapixel a lot on This Week in Photo, um, and uh, we have a lot of respect for those guys. So we're excited to see that they're moving into the audio broadcasting space. So give them some love. Head over there. All right, uh, guys, before we sign off and in this episode of This Week in Photo, Doug K., what have you got coming up in the coming months? A lot of teaching going on right now, and I've got uh, leading a workshop to Cuba in November, another one in January. They're they're both sold out, unfortunately. Might do one in March if there's enough demand, but uh, it's really all about workshops and online training right now. You're just living the life, man. You are just living life. And how how many trips do you have planned to Hawaii in 2016? Uh, I'll probably be in Maui two or three times. (laughs) (laughs) Most people say that in their entire lifetimes. I'll go to Maui two or three times in my lifetime. Doug K, 2016, two or three times. (laughs) I love it. Somebody's got to do it. I know. They know you in the airport like Norm, right? (laughs) I love it. Well, cool. Thanks for coming on, Doug. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right. Mr. Don Komarechka, what do you got coming up in the next month or so? Well, uh, like Doug, I've got some sold out workshops as well uh, in Grand Prairie, Alberta, of all places, doing some macro workshops up there, which are a lot of fun. Um, still have some uh, other workshops and classes uh, that people can check out if they head over to my website. But, um, you know, I've got uh, one big project uh, that is just about to launch, Frederick, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it'll be launching with your voice alongside. I love it. Tell us about this new project that you're working on, <laughs> well, Mr. Don Comerica. We've talked about it before, but this is the <laughs> uh, the sort of sciencey, geeky, techie uh, podcast on the This Week in Photo Network uh, called Inside the Lens. 
and uh, it will be launching in October. And uh, we've already recorded a number of episodes. Uh, first one is with me and you. Uh, I think the well, that's episode zero. Episode one is just a sort of a, a brief uh, monologue describing what the uh, podcast is about, and then we get into the other guests. So um, following that, we have uh, Ted Kinsman, who does a lot of work with electron microscopes and figuring mm. out exactly why that's necessary, how that technology works. Um, followed by uh, Ray Maxwell, where we have a great conversation on color science and uh, many more great guests to follow. I love Ray Maxwell. He, I remember Ray, he's been on TWIP a couple of times, and I remember him from This Week in Tech a lot. And he's, he's one of those guys that you just want to sit down and just like have a cup of coffee or a drink with and just listen to him rattle off because he's probably forgotten more things. Than I'll ever know, yeah. Than we'll ever know. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. Very good. Well, thank you for putting that together. I'm excited to launch that. We'll be launching that soon. We don't have an actual launch date, but as soon as we, as soon as we do, we'll let you know. It'll be within the next couple of weeks. We'll push that live. And with that, I think it's time to take that lens cap off. Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.